Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. The last two Sundays, we kind of paused what we were doing in Acts, and we really zoomed in on one idea in one verse of Acts 13, 48. As many as, got a, as, many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and we talked about the doctrine of election for two Sundays from various passages of the Bible. And that sort of allows me today to sort of have a setup to, I think, better explain what's happening in the actual text we are in, in, in Acts 13, which we plan to get to in a little bit. But let me just give you a quick outline for today's sermon. It's the what, why, and how. So, number one, what is the mystery? I'll explain this as we go, but number one, what is the mystery? Number two, why would God do it this way? And number three, how should we respond? So, number one, what is the mystery? Number two, why would God do it this way? And number three, how should we respond? It's going to be a moment before I even explain my first point. So, just hold that in your mind for a moment. Before we get to that, I want to set it up. So, this will ask your memory to, to recall something that it will not be able to recall, but I think maybe our second sermon in the Acts series. Remember back when you were a young child? Do you remember that back when we started Acts? I think it was the second sermon, I think, where we, we spent a long time in Isaiah in one of those early sermons, and I'm not going to act like we all remember all that happened in that sermon, but I want to remind you of something that we did mention in that sermon, which is when you get to the latter chapters of the book of Isaiah, especially Isaiah really 40 to the end of Isaiah, 40 to 66, and really it's 40 to 55, you, you find out that there is… Now, don't lie if you don't really remember this, but do you remember this? There are… There are really two servants of the Lord. You've got the servant of the Lord Israel, which is the nation in rebellion, and then you've got the servant of the Lord Israel, who is the Messiah. Okay, it looks like you all remember perfectly what this is. <laughs> so, in the latter parts of Isaiah, 40 to 55, if you read them, you'll find over and over, Isaiah will say, the servant Israel, and then he'll say things like, is blind, deaf, and dumb, stiffened in sin, will not stop hardening their heart against the Lord. Well, that's clearly not Jesus, right? That's, that is Israel in its fallen condition. But then, sometimes just a few verses later, it will say, Oh, Israel, my servant, you, you, there was no deceit in your mouth. You gave your back to those who struck you. You gave your beard to those who pulled it out. We all like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, this servant Israel, the iniquity of us all. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And you're going, this doesn't sound like the same group. You see what I'm saying? So, you've got Israel in its fallen condition. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But then you've got this individual, this one man, apparently his beard is being pulled out, his back is being whipped, he's dying for the sins of others, he is perfect, he is sinless, he always does what the Lord commands, and he is also called my servant Israel. Now, you know, back in the Old Testament, sometimes the king would, would stand in for the whole nation. You know, so you have Israel, but then you have David would be like, Israel personified. He's the man who represents the nation. Well, it seems as though what Isaiah is showing is you've got Israel in its fallen condition, but then you have the Israel par excellence, this perfect incarnation of Israel, this, this perfect obedient Israelite who is actually dying a horrible death in the place of sinners. And so, as you read Isaiah, you, you see him flip-flopping between these two individuals, one the nation in its fallen condition, and one the Messiah. Well, Isaiah 49 is definitely talking about Jesus, not Israel in its fallen state, but look with me here at uh, the, the beginning of chapter 49. The New Testament will apply these verses to Jesus repeatedly, and our text today in Acts does as well. 
Acts, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He made me a polished arrow in His quiver. He hid me away. And He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spit, spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him, and that Israel might be gathered to Him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength, He says, it is too light a thing, too small a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Okay, because of the Lord, who is faithful and has chosen you. Okay, now just hang with me here for, for a moment as, as we try to get clarity on what is happening here. If you look back at verse 3, do you see who this person is called? He is called my servant Israel. You see that? This individual is called my servant Israel. And then verse 5, here's what this person Israel is going to do. Verse 5, and the Lord says, he who formed me, that's Israel, from the womb to be a servant, my servant Israel, to bring Jacob back to him that Israel might be gathered to him. Okay. I promise you this will be worth it, but just hang with me, okay? So, do you see how this is a little confusing when you first read it? There's an individual person named Israel, my servant, who is then going to restore Israel. Do you see there's two Israels? <laughs> You've got my servant Israel, this man whose beard's going to be pulled out in the next chapter, who's perfect and sinless, and God is going to give this man, Israel, a job which is to restore Israel, and then also to be a light to the nations, non-Israel, Gentiles. Okay. This is clearly Jesus, and the New Testament will quote Him as being that. Now, here's, here's what I think a lot of people would have expected, what I probably would have expected reading this passage and others like it in the Old Testament. There's others in Isaiah. But we'll just focus one more time on verses 5 and 6. What do you think is being said here? L listen to these words again. And now the Lord says, He who formed me, this is the Messiah figure, Israel, from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him that Israel might be gathered to Him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, this is God speaking to that individual, the Messiah, it is too light a thing that you, Christ, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, and uh, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth." This is the idea. When this embodiment of Israel, this true Israel figure comes, this son of David, this Messiah, this servant of the Lord, when he comes on the scene, he is going to bring salvation to ethnic Jews. He's going to bring salvation to ethnic Gentiles. His light is going to reach the ends of the world. Is that pretty, pretty clear? Now, if you, the text doesn't say this, which I think makes this a little bit more complicated, but if you just read it the first time, it would sound like, and I think there is an element that this is true, 
Who gets reached first in verse 6? Who sounds like this individual? Is he going to reach Israel or Gentiles first in verse 6? Does it sound like? It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. Doesn't it sound like Israel comes first? This is the kind of passage I think Paul has in mind when he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, like Romans 1, the, the gospel is good news that God's wrath is revealed against ungodlessness and, sinla- and sinfulness in the world. But he says there's good news. The righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith, for in it the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul says, and anybody who believes is going to be made right, the Jew first and also the Gentile. The, the Jew first and also the Gentile, which makes sense, right? If this is the ethnically Jewish Messiah and the promises are made to Israel, it makes sense that the Messiah reaches Israel and then the nations. This seems pretty pretty obvious. Okay, now turn, we can leave Isaiah, turn with me to Luke's gospel chapter 2. Luke's gospel chapter 2. This is the birth of Jesus, and if you skip past the familiar story of Jesus in a manger, and you look at Jesus uh, after He's been born, He comes into the temple. I'm going to read a few verses here. I love these verses. Luke 2.25. Luke 2.25, now there was a man, so they bring Jesus in to be circumcised in the temple, they're keeping the law. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death by the Holy Spirit, excuse me, he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him, took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I think he's thinking of Isaiah 49. Do you see it? So, a light of revelation to the nations, to the Gentiles, and glory for your people Israel. That to me is an Isaiah 49, 6 verse that he's thinking of that. Okay, let's go to the very end of Luke's gospel, last chapter, Luke 24. The last words of Jesus in Luke's gospel, among those, he says this, Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written, so he's quoting the Old Testament, that the Christ should suffer, sounds like Isaiah 53, and on the third day, sounds like Jonah coming out of the whale, should rise from the dead, also sounds like Isaiah 53, rising from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Doesn't that sound like Isaiah 49? The the Messiah comes, blesses His people, and then the light goes out to the nations. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Okay, turn to Acts chapter 1. So, skip the Gospel of John, turn to Acts chapter 1, Luke's second volume. 
Remember in Isaiah 49, he says, you will be a light to the ends of the earth. He used that phrase, to the ends of the earth at the end of that verse. Okay. Acts 1, verse 8. Jesus speaking to His apostles right before the ascension, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, do you hear Isaiah again? You're, 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 you're going to bless the people of God, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, you're going to bless Israel, and then you're going to reach the ends of the earth. That sounds like Isaiah 49 again. Okay, now uh, turn with me another time to chapter 5 of Acts. Acts chapter 5. What we have seen in these early chapters of Acts, starting in chapter 2 of Pentecost, is we've seen thousands of Jews convert to Christ. They have, they have come to know Christ. And if you see here uh, in Acts chapter 5, verse 30 and 31, Peter says this, "'The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him to His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins.'" So, who is God reaching in these early months? He's reaching Israel just as He promised, and He gives… Look, this is going back to the predestination thing. God doesn't just give forgiveness, He gives repentance. So, if you repented, God gave you that willingness to repent. So, God gave repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And then turn with me again to Acts chapter 11, going forward even more. Now, if you remember the outline, the first nine chapters of Acts, virtually, maybe, every single convert is, an, is, is, a, is a Jew, every single convert. I know the Ethiopian eunuch is still up for debate what he was, but he could be the one exception. But everybody, with the, maybe one exception, everybody is an, is, is a, is an ethnic Jew converted up and through uh, Acts chapter 9. And then remember, 10 and 11 is the first time Gentiles are converted. And look at chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. Paul, Peter summarizing about what happened to the, to the Gentiles who were converted. Verse 17 of Acts 11, if then God gave the same gift to them, the Gentiles, as He gave to us, the Jews, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they all fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, do you see again? It's not just life that is the gift of God. What else? It's the repentance that is itself a gift of God. Again, this is the sovereignty of God in salvation. Must we… You know, must we repent to be saved? Yes. But where does that desire come from? The Lord grants it. He, he grants it. So, the Lord granted not just to Israel, but He also granted here to the Gentiles to repent, and that led to their, their transformation of life. Okay, all this in place. Turn to chapter 13 to our main text for today, although we're going to be in a few others. When I say, what is the mystery… Uh, Paul actually uses the word mystery to describe what we're going to talk about today, but it, the first time you really clearly see it is this text, and it, it will begin to reoccur throughout the rest of Acts, and it does sound strange. It, it does sound strange given what Isaiah and other prophets said. Look again at our text for today, Acts 13, verses 44 to 52. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So, just pause there. Remember last Sabbath the week earlier, Paul had gone to the synagogue. You know, he's a well-respected Jew. He's got all the credentials, Gamaliel's feet. I was trained. He's got the right schooling from the, from the Pharisaic perspective. Oh, 
Saul of Tarsus is here. He's graced us with His presence. Saul, would you like to give us a word of encouragement from the Scripture? Saul says, oh, I would, I would love to. Saul gets up and gives them a bunch of Jesus. <laughs> he, he talks about the Old Testament is leading to Jesus, and Jesus is the Son of David. He's the Messiah. He died for sinners. He rose from the dead. He's the true and better David. If you turn from sin and trust Him, you'll be saved. This is what the whole Old Testament was pointing to. It's Jesus of Nazareth. There's eyewitnesses. John the Baptist was all about this guy's ministry. You know this has got to be true. And people are intrigued. It's controversial. The room is just a buzz. There's electricity in the synagogue. I don't know if there was always electricity in the synagogue, but there was electricity in the synagogue after it was over. And people go out there in the week, and they're following Paul and Barnabas around, and they're getting insider information. They're asking, give me more. Explain this in more detail. What about this passage? What about this passage? And Paul's explaining, no doubt, all week long to these, to these Jewish people who had followed him out of that week. Well, the next week when he comes back for the gathering, it says the whole city had come. Now, that's slight hyperbole on Luke's part. I don't think it means every individual, but it's, it is a lot of people who are there, thousands of people. A lot of commentators say they probably could not have fit in the synagogue building. They were probably maybe outside the synagogue. I don't know where they were. But they were nearby, and they have thousands gathered. And there are Jews present, and there are proselytes, that is Gentile converts to Judaism present, and God-fearers, and there are full-blooded Gentiles present. There's thousands of people. This has been the talk of the town for the whole week. And Paul gets up to speak again, verse 45. But when the Jews, this is not all the Jews, but this is some of the leaders, when the Jews saw the crowds… They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the Word of God should be spoken first to you, to the Jew first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and look, he quotes our verse, Isaiah 49, 6, I have made you that is the servant, Jesus, a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Just pause there. I love this. So the Gentiles can't believe themselves. You mean we don't have to convert to Judaism. We don't have to undergo all these rituals. We just believe in Jesus, and we are right with the God of Israel. We're, we're saved? Yes. And they are exuberant. They can't believe it. They are excited. They are receiving it with joy. And as many as were appointed to eternal life embraced the gospel. They believe. And it says the word spread throughout the region. I, I love this. When people come to know Christ, the gospel tends to get back to the people that they live around, that they are living with, whether it's roommates or family. It just goes immediately to those they're around, and you begin to speak about what you are excited about. And so they begin to spread the word. It goes throughout the region. You know, just as a complete side point here, one of Paul's missionary strategies in Acts, if you haven't noticed it, you may have seen it, Paul tends, this is no knock on people who live in non-urban settings, but Paul tends to pick highly populated urban settings. Why? Because here's what would happen. He goes into the major, most packed with people cities he can find on these Roman roads, right? He's walking the Roman roads a lot. He goes into a city, preaches in the synagogue, gets some converts, and he usually gets kicked out or beaten. All right, I guess I'll go to the marketplace. Goes to the marketplace, preaches the gospel, Gentiles, some of them are converted, then he probably gets beat up or 
put in jail. He's like, all right, I'll go to another city. And Paul's always got options. And so Paul preaches, starts a little church, and then what happens? He starts it in a major urban setting so that the, that city will get to know the gospel. But then what happens is the gospel spreads to the, to the non-urban area around. Uh, the, 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 more, the, the more remote parts get reached by the city. So Paul is often reaching these highly populated cities so that then once a church is formed and is healthy, that church can then send people out to the surrounding regions. And something like that is happening in verse 49. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, do you see what's a little bit surprising in this passage? The majority of the Jews in the synagogue do what? They reject the message. The leadership rejects it. There's only some that believe, and largely who's believing? It's non-Jews. Now, this, I will say, is a mystery. It's a surprise. It's not what you might have expected. What you would have probably expected is the Jews believe in their Messiah, 99% of them, and then maybe some Gentiles come in and begin to believe it. But instead, it's almost the opposite. Largely, Israel begins to harden against the Messiah, and largely Gentiles begin streaming in to the church. And you can see this pattern continues. Just continue with me here. Turn to Acts 18. You'll see this keep happening throughout Acts. Look at 18 in Corinth, uh, verses 5 and 6. 18.5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word. I think Paul was always occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled Him, He shook out His garment and said, "'Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Again, he is rejected by the majority of ethnic Israel and turns to the Gentiles. Turn with me to Acts 28, the last paragraph of Acts. This is how Acts ends its book. And it's the, if it's the first time you're reading it, it would be a little bit surprising perhaps. So Paul shows up in Rome, verse 17, after three days, Acts 28, 17, after three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and he had them gathered together, and he preaches the gospel to them. Look at verse 20. Three, when he had appointed a day for, the, for him, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others, sounds like the majority, dis disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, quotes Isaiah 6, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you. This is how Acts ends. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen." He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So do you see here, this is what is unexpected. This is the mystery that we will talk about in a moment. We expect perhaps that when the Messiah comes, the majority of Israel believes and some Gentiles tag along. But instead, almost the reverse happens. 
Instead, the minority, the remnant of Israel believes, and the floodgates open for Gentiles to come in, and that's how Acts ends. Now, why I say that's strange is because the first nine chapters of Acts, it's all Jews converting. It's 10,000 Jews who are converted. But what happens is right here in Acts 13, where we are, the tide begins to turn for the first time in, in, in Acts, and what you're seeing is this surprise. So, turn with me now, next book of the Bible, Romans chapter 11. And I want us to see what this mystery is and why God would do it this way. And if I can put it in a sentence, and I'm borrowing this sentence from G.K. Beale, but I think this is a good sentence, the mystery is this. It's to the Jew first, then to the Gentile, dot, 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 then to the Jew. That last part was not as clearly seen in the Old Testament, and that, was, that, that is a mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament mostly and becomes clearly revealed in the New Testament. To the Jew first, then to the Gentile, dot, 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 then to the Jew. So just uh, stay with me here as I read through a, a chunk of Romans 11 on this very topic. Romans 11 verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected His people? That's ethnic Israel. Has God just rejected them? Has He just turned them over? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people, that is, ethnic Jews, whom He foreknew. Do you not know that what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself, there's the sovereignty of God, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant of ethnic Jews chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed, for the most part, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, that's the remnant whom God chose, the elect obtained it, salvation, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Verse 11, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so also are the branches. Now, skip to the end here. We're moving a different order. Look at verse 25. Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. That's where I'm getting the word mystery, right there. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. What is the mystery? Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And, he will be my, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they, ethnic Israel, are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Okay, just pause here for a moment. What is going on in this passage? Here's what Paul's saying. 
what was not as clearly revealed in the Old Testament that has become clearly revealed now, this mystery is this. When the Messiah came, Israel would largely be hardened against the Messiah and largely reject Him. Why? So that God could, in a way unexpected, open the door for Gentiles to flood into the church and to receive Christ. Why would God… So, that, that's, the, that's the mystery. The mystery is, it started when the Messiah came, it started with a remnant of Jews, the first nine chapters of Acts. It started with Jew first, right? And then later in Acts, the Jews largely turn away and it becomes then to the Gentiles, right? The whole second half of Acts is all about the Gentiles, and the Jews largely are turning away from the gospel. And then Paul says, but, verse 26, in this way all Israel will be saved. I think he means near the time of the second coming, there's going to be a massive revival amongst ethnic Jews, and that, the, that a majority of ethnic Jews… I know this, this will be wonderful, will it not? A majority of ethnic Jews will turn and trust in Christ as their Messiah. They will look on Him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn as one weeps for an only child. They will see the Messiah. They will repent. They will believe in Jesus. And the majority of ethnic Jews in the last generation will be, I think, radically and miraculously saved. So that's the mystery. The mystery that was not as clearly revealed in the Old Testament. Now, my question is, why would God do this this way? And the answer is in the middle of the chapter. Look at verse 17. Why would God do it this way? But if some of the branches were broken off, that's ethnic Jews, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not become arrogant toward the branches. That's crucial. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, you Gentiles, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Look, you see, a Gentile could say, hey, a, a lot of Jews were broken off so that I, a Gentile, could be brought in. Doesn't that make me extra special? Doesn't that give me grounds for boasting? Verse 20, that is true that that happened. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, he says it again, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in, in His kindness. Otherwise, you too, you Gentiles, will be cut off. And even they, if they, that is ethnic Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, being a Gentile, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, true Israel, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let me read this part again. Lest you be wise in your own sight. That's arrogance again. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon ethnic Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, look at verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy, you Gentiles, because of their disobedience, so they too, ethnic Israel, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him 
are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now, just a note on that last part. Oftentimes, we know that last doxology, verses 33 to 36. Most Christians know that passage, but we don't often know what it's praising God for in context. When it says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, that includes God giving Israel a spirit of stupor, handing them over to their own willful disobedience. It includes God uh, electing a remnant of Israel chosen by grace and saving them, like in the day of Elijah, 7,000 God kept. It also includes God opening a door for the Gentiles and showing mercy and drawing in the, the Gentiles into the church. Why does God do it this way? Here's why. Whenever this talk about election comes up, the answer is always at bottom, no matter where you are in the Bible, the answer is God did it this way. Why would God choose to hand Israel over to a hardened heart like it says in verse 8? And why would He choose to soften the hearts of Gentiles? Why do it this way? And the answer is humility for us and glory for Him. In other words, there was a temptation, and you saw it throughout the Old Testament, for Israel to begin to boast in their position, rights, privileges, their circumcision, their temple worship, their animal sacrifices, their kings. Look at us. And they became a bunch of Jonas, right? Look what we have. We're not giving it to you, but look what we have. I don't want to give grace and mercy to those nations out there. They're dirty, pagan, awful nations like Assyria, Nineveh, the capital. We don't, those are horrible people. I don't want God to show the mercy to them, but God, you've given us so much. You're, we're your chosen people. We are, we are incredible. And there was a temptation towards pride that led to a callousness toward the lost that led to a Jonah syndrome where we don't want to go and serve others. We want to kind of be in our own little enclave and just sort of be, be here and, and do our thing. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to humble the whole nation of Israel by largely handing them over to their own hardness of heart and largely leaving just a remnant, but largely handing them to lostness for a time, for a season, a long season, 2,000 years. The majority of Israel has rejected Jesus for 2,000 years. And then God says, I'm going to, I'm going to turn everything upside down because now I'm going to take those dirty heathens, that's us, those Gentile dogs, you know, those, those, those horrible pagans, we can't even eat in their house under Old Testament, certain Old Testament laws with the purity food laws. I'm going to actually purify them by faith. I'm going to get rid of the law dividing Jew and Gentile with the ceremonial laws. I'm going to bring them, I'm going to soften their hearts. I'm going to bring Gentiles into the church by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions. I'm going to save Gentiles for, thousands, for, for centuries, for thousands of years. And the Lord knows this. At just about this moment in history, He knows, and even back then, He knows, we Gentiles, most of us are non-Jews, we Gentiles at this very moment could start to think, well, see, we're the real deal. Israel screwed this whole thing up. They made a mistake, but we, we received Christ. I mean, we did the right thing. They, they were supposed to receive Christ, but look at us. We actually believed in Him. They didn't. They failed. At the very moment the Lord knows we are going to be tempted with a, with a kind of ethnic superiority going the other direction, you see? Just like they had a pride in their Jewishness, we could have a pride in our non-Jewishness. Look, we, we did the right thing. They, 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 they're the one that had them, you know, look what they did with Christ on the cross. And so, at the very moment, God turns expectations once again upside down, and at the end of history, God is going to save the majority of ethnic Jews so that we Gentiles don't boast in our being Gentiles. The whole point here is, who would have ever thought of this plan? None of us. If, if any of us were God, we would never, I guarantee you, none of us would have thought to do this. We, we would not. And Paul says in verses 33, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Let me read it again. How, middle of 33, how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given Him a gift that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So, is God going to keep His promise to save Israel? Yes. He saves a remnant now, and He saves the last generation at the return of Christ. He's going to save Israel. He's not going to, he has not neglected them. He hasn't turned them out. But in the meantime, the times of the Gentiles are now, and so the majority within the church are those who, uh, who are non-Jews at this time. And God does it all to humble everybody on both sides so that no one would boast in their flesh, but that we would all boast in God. Okay, my third point, turn with me back to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. So, what, what is the takeaway? Because this may seem very up in the air. How, what, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, number one, we should be humbled by the fact that God has chosen to save us. That, that should be a humbling factor. But let's look at a few things here before we close. What, what, is Paul, what do Paul and Barnabas do here in this passage and in, and in future passages? They prayerfully preach the gospel with boldness. They do it indiscriminately to anyone who will listen, and they always trust God to give the final results. Let me reread a portion, and then we'll wrap up. Look at verse 46 again, Acts 13. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the Word of God be spoken first to you, the ethnic Jew, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is crucial. The I have made you in that verse, made you a light to the Gentiles. Remember, in context, that's the Messiah, right? The servant of the Lord, the one who suffers for our sins. I have made you a light for the Gentiles. And do you see what Paul's doing? Paul is taking on the job here of the Messiah because he's the, he's the representative of Christ. And so what does he do? He says, I am going to be the embodiment of Christ on earth, right? We're the body of Christ. And we get to do the very thing here that the Messiah is called to do. Through us, Christ gets the gospel out to all nations. Jesus is not here in His humanity to preach the gospel to all nations, but His body is on earth to do that. So through us and by His Spirit, He will preach the gospel to all nations. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, drove them out of their district, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We, like the parable of the soils and the sower, we throw the seed of the gospel indiscriminately everywhere, whether it looks like rocky soil, thorny soil, whether it looks like good soil, whatever it looks like, we throw it because we don't know how anyone will respond to the gospel. You don't know how a drug addict can respond to the gospel. You don't know how some goody-two-shoes kid who's never done anything wrong outwardly but doesn't know the Lord. You don't know who's going to trust Christ. You could preach the gospel to a bunch of you know, goody-two-shoes kids and all of them could reject it. You could go to, a, go to a jail and preach in a prison ministry and you could have a massive re response. We have no idea who the Lord has chosen. So what do we do? We preach the gospel indiscriminately to all. We urge all to repent, all to believe, all to trust in Christ 
Christ. And the gospel is available for all who will believe. And then as, as we preach the gospel, the Spirit, we trust the Spirit to work through the message and to save those whom He's appointed to eternal life. The Lord will not be faithless to save His own as we do that work. So our evangelism, our prayer, our preaching is essential in this process because God does not just ordain the ends, He ordains the means to the end. And if God ordains to put a nail in a two-by-four, you should probably pick up the hammer and put it there, if you understand what I'm saying. If God ordains someone's salvation, He's also going to ordain you to speak the gospel to them and your prayers for them. And so we are not uh, unimportant in the process of evangelism. We are essential in the process of evangelism because God will use our actions to bring about real results. And when we preach and when we talk to others and when we present the truth, we cannot control the final results, but we can trust God with whatever happens, whether it's persecution whether that person doesn't want to talk to you as much at work, they scoot a little bit over to the side when you sit down at the table, they don't want to see you again, or whether this person just loves the message and deeply is moved and affected or stirred, or if it's someone that you've been reaching out to for months or years, and after 15 years finally, they begin to be interested and they begin to lean in, and they begin to ask questions. Maybe they experience a tragedy or something, and they have new ears to hear the gospel, and they begin to listen more attentively. Whatever it is, we are called to be faithful with the gospel and to present it indiscriminately to all, and then we pray for God to work through it, and we trust God with the results, whatever may come our way, so that at the end of the day, like verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit, despite many being kicked out of that city. We can trust God's goodness and sovereignty no matter what happens with the results. Our responsibility is to pray, to be bold, to speak the Word, and to trust the results to our Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it, is, it really is amazing when I look at all these passages, whether it's 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is weak to shame the strong, what is poor to shame the rich, so that, uh, that no flesh may boast before the Lord. Because of Him we are in Christ Jesus. When I think about Ephesians 1, that blessed be God that He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Or when I think about Romans 8, that, that God has, uh, who will bring any charge against God's elect, or Colossians 3 when it says, let us with humility as God's chosen ones love and forgive and bear with one another. When I think about these passages, we hear it over and over, Romans 11, why the hardening of Israel, why the ingathering of the Gentiles now, and why the reversal later, so that God may be all in all. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things, and all things means all things. And God, help us to be humbled by this truth, that we would not boast or brag about anything about us. It wasn't because of any accomplishment or merit in us that we have been chosen. It is by sheer, undeserved, unconditional mercy that You have poured out, as Romans 9 also teaches. God, I pray these truths would go deep into our heart, that they would humble us, that they would help us to want to give You all glory, all honor, all credit for anything good that has come in our life or come out of our life. And help us to be bold like Paul and Barnabas, to give the Word of God out indiscriminately to all, whether they look hopeful or hopeless in their spiritual walk, because we never know uh, who might become interested and who might be drawn to the saving message. So we pray this now, God. Please use us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.